chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Well, growing up as a child, there was no doubt that baseball was my favorite sport. I was caught up in New York's love for the 1986 Mets, a team that beat the Red Sox four games to three. That was very sweet. And year after year, it was an annual tradition in my house to watch the Fall Classic, even when the Mets were not playing. And they eventually, rather quickly, became a horrible team. The Yankees were still years away from their championship dynasty in the late ni- of the late 90s, and New Yorkers quickly lost their patience for baseball. And they fell in love with basketball, the New York Knicks in particular. Uh, tickets at Madison Square Garden were incredibly hard to get, as the Knicks would regularly battle Michael Jordan and the Bulls, for that top perch in the Eastern Conference. And for many years, I was a big fan of Patrick Ewing and John Starks and Derek Harper. Those guys, with Pat Riley leading them, were a great crew. But we never won it. Well, one year, um, after while I was interning at a mergers and acquisitions firm in New York during college, the firm's uh, VP found out that I was a Knicks fan, and he gave me his... Uh, courtside seats to that night's Nick game at the Garden in Manhattan. And as a kid, it was an incredible experience, I'll be honest with you. Everyone was in the Garden that night. It was electric. Um, on the front row were players from the New York Giants. I, locked, I, I just looked over to my left, and there was Alec Baldwin laughing it up with Spike Lee. Uh, Sitting directly in front of me was Samuel Jackson. I I could have touched his dome with my hands. He was like sitting right there. And uh, it was electric. And and then I noticed on the sidelines was Knicks legend Walt Clyde Frazier, the uh, extraordinary point guard who led the Knicks through their uh, championship run in the 70s. And so at the moment, he wasn't talking to anyone, so I decided to go over and have a chat with him. He kindly signed an autograph, and I then asked him uh, an important question. I asked him, Mr. Frazier, are you saved? And he looked at me, and he had this puzzled look, and he said, saved? Saved from what? And as I stumbled around looking for words, he then looked at me, and he said, oh, you mean religiously? No, I'm not. We had a moment of awkward silence. And, uh, and I thanked him for the autograph, and I w- walked off a little disappointed. And years have passed since that encounter, and I thought to myself, you know, I could have certainly expounded that question better for Walt Clyde, but it is what it is. The question remains. For all of us as believers, if we are saved, what are we saved from? What does it mean 
to be saved. And perhaps some of you are wondering why I'm even asking that question on this final Sunday before Christmas. This morning, as we've read, we celebrate the theme of love. And while many songs have been written about love, there is one song, and I know you, know, you all know it, it famously asks, what is love? And I'm not going to say the other parts because it kind of gets stuck in your head and you start shaking your head, so I'm going to leave that. But the question remains, what is love? Humans have always had great difficulty in defining the word love. Many marriages have failed because two people have supposedly fallen out of love. Countless orphan children suffer because they don't receive this mysterious thing called love. Books regarding supposed love languages have been written and sold. I just returned from Las Vegas this past week and I've got to, I, I'm going to admit that I've never driven by so many love shops in my life. So apparently love means something drastically different in Vegas. <laughs> so what is love? What is love? Well, some theologians would try to pontificate that there are three different types of loves. You've probably heard this before, eros, phileo, and agape. And they would, tr- they would say that agape is the highest form of love because it is godly love. This, by the way, is an error because if you carefully study the original languages, the word agape could be used in perverse settings as well. It is not what people say at least what generally people say it is. So then what is love? The highest form of love is actually delivered very straightforwardly for us in verse 8, where the Bible says that God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus reinforced this view of love in John fifteen thirteen when he declared, if you remember, that there is no greater love than the love of a man who lays down his life for his friends. Remember that, right? So in a world that is very confused about love, I want you to leave this Christmas season enthralled with God's definition of love. And so according to today's passage, God's love entails three essential components. Number one, purity. God's love is pure. It's very different from Vegas' definition of love. Number two, God's love is just. God's love upholds justice. And number three, God's love paid the ultimate price. In fact, I think I could put it this way. Because God is pure and because God is just, therefore his love paid the ultimate price. And allow me to explain. Turn with me to a very famous Christmas passage, Matthew one twenty one. Here's what it says. She, referring to Mary, will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, many of you know this, and this is accurate. The name Jesus is Yeshua in Hebrew, and it is a verbal derivative from to rescue or to deliver. Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year 
Because Jesus came to deliver or save his people. But this brings us back to the question Walt Clyde asked me. What exactly are we saved from? Frazier was right. What are we saved from? If Jesus is our Savior, what exactly did he save us from? Well, this might sound strange, but here it is. Jesus died to save us from God. That's right, from God. Not from evil forces, not from pestilence, not even from the devil. Jesus ultimately died to save us from God. It's right there in verse 9 of today's text in Romans. We shall be saved by Him, meaning Christ, from the wrath of God. Do you see it there in Romans? Well, you see, terms such as sinner and hell and wrath are very uncommon these days. In fact, there are many who no longer believe in hell. Men like religious philosopher John Hick have referred to hell as, quote, grim fantasy. Grim fantasy. That it is not only morally revolting, but also a serious perversion of the Christian gospel. What about you? Do you need saving? Do you believe in the Bible's warnings of hell? Is it really as bad as Christ claimed it to be? And although we might feel uncomfortable with terms such as hell and wrath, may I propose this morning that it is only when we come to a proper biblical understanding of such terms that we truly begin appreciating God's love during this Christmas season. So allow me to explain. Contrary to popular thought, the devil does not run hell. We often have this image of the devil sitting on a throne in hell, running the joint. But the Bible tells us, Jesus says in Matthew 5.41, that that hell was created for the devil and his angels. Here's what Christ says. The fires of eternal hell were prepared for the devil and his angels. Subsequent to the fall of the rebellious angels, however, hell is now the final destination for all who die without faith in Christ. Hell is a place where God's wrath will be poured out. It is a place where Scripture depicts uh, for us vividly a place of torment, of fire, a place where sin is eternally paid for and God's justice is met. And because God is infinitely holy, he by very nature must punish sinners in hell. Now, this is very overbearing for some. But this is why Christmas is so significant. This is why Christmas is so very significant. During during Christmas, believers all over the world celebrate the love of a God who sent his own son to die for sins committed by rebels. We deserved hell, but Jesus took hell for our, in our place on the cross. And so if you repent of your sins and believe in Jesus, you have eternal life. Either Christ paid for your sins on the cross, or you will pay for your sins eternally in hell. And according to the New Testament, angels burst out in glorious form to celebrate Jesus' birth on that very first Christmas day. 
And it is rightfully the highlight of our current calendars because it was the highlight of cosmic history. The curse of Eden was finally undone by the Savior's birth. And while some deride the notion of hell, devout Christians continue to cling to Jesus' warnings of hell. The reason why missionaries continue to go out is because of this teaching. Missionaries, pastors, ordinary Christians all over the world are still willing to go to the ends of the world to share the good news of God's salvation. In fact, just as verse 8 demonstrates God's love for us, missionaries display the highest form of love through missions and evangelism. Think about it. When people give up the comforts of Western life in order to bring the gospel to the world, we are simply following the footsteps of our Savior who left the glories of heaven in order to bring salvation to us. Some of you may have heard about this. It was all over the news. About a month ago, a 27-year-old missionary, John Chow, was killed while trying to bring the gospel to the tribal people of North Sentinel Island. And on November 30th, the New York Times ran a piece entitled, John Chow Wanted to Change Life on North Sentinel Island. Was he wrong? And in it was, a, was the following excerpt. This is what the journalist wrote. Mr. Chow saw it as his moral imperative to get to the island. In his evangelical worldview, it is an act of compassion to introduce people to Christianity. That is the only way to save them from burning in hell. It's called the Great Commission, and North Sentinel represented the greatest commission, since no one we know of had ever tried to convert the islanders, end quote. And while there's debate as to whether or not John Chow should have gone or his methodology, and while the New York Times is not the most conservative newspaper, I was surprised as to how pinpoint accurate they were concerning the Christian's worldview and the Great Commission. It's exactly right. You see, we shared the gospel not because we're imperialistic. We shared the gospel because we actually believe in a literal hell and we desire to see people saved from God's wrath the same way Jesus desired it and therefore came to earth 2,000 years ago. We want everyone to know the Savior's love. On this 23rd day of December, I want us to think about a story. It's a true story. Many of you might have heard about it. Some of you may have not. Six years ago, on the 100-year anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic, a newspaper ran an article As Titanic sank, he pleaded, believe in the Lord Jesus. And I'm going to share a piece with you. When pastor and preacher John Harper and his six-year-old daughter boarded the Titanic, it was for the privilege of preaching at one of the greatest churches in America, Moody Church in Chicago. 
named for the famous founder, Dwight L. Moody. The church was anxiously waiting for their pastor's arrival, not only because of pending services, but because Harper had planned to accept their invitation. Harper was known as an engaging preacher, and he had pastored two churches in Gaslow and London. When the Titanic hit the iceberg, Harper successfully led his daughter to a lifeboat. Being a widower, he may have been allowed to join her, but instead he forsook his own rescue, gave up his seat, choosing to provide the masses with one more chance to know Jesus. Harper ran from person to person, passionately telling others about Christ. As the waters began to submerge the unsinkable ship, Harper was heard shouting, Women, children, and the unsaved into the lifeboats. Rebuffed by a certain man at the offer of salvation, Harper took off his own life vest and gave it to him, telling him, you need this more than I do. And up until the very last moment, Harper pleaded with people to give their lives to Jesus. The ship disappeared beneath the deep, frigid waters, leaving hundreds floundering in its wake with no realistic chance for rescue. And as Harper struggled through hypothermia to swim to as many people as he could, still sharing the gospel, he eventually lost his battle, but not before giving many people one last glorious gospel witness. And four years later, after the tragedy, Titanic survivors met in Ontario, Canada. One survivor recounted his interaction with Harper in the middle of the icy waters of the Atlantic. He testified that he was clinging to the debris of the ship when Harper swam up to him, twice challenging him with a biblical invitation to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. He rejected the offer once, yet given the second chance and with miles of icy water beneath him, The man gave his life to Christ, and as Harper succumbed to his watery grave, the new believer was rescued by a returning lifeboat. As he concluded his remarks at the Ontario meeting of survivors, he simply stated, I am the last convert of John Harper. Now, I am aware of the fact that many in this world would say that John Harper was an unloving fool for leaving his daughter behind to be an orphan. I am also aware of the fact that while I am dry and warm, it is very hard for me to say that I would have done the exact same thing. Very hard. I admit that. But in my heart of hearts, I believe that John Harper proved his faith and demonstrated his love for God and neighbor in the ultimate way. There's no question. Just like Jesus, he understood the justice of God, the purity of love, and therefore he paid the ultimate price. And as we read today's text, here's what God's word says. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. 
But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, we have been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. You see, the only reason Christmas is meaningful in a deep way for so many around the world is because so many around the world still believe what Jesus did for them 2,000 years ago. It wasn't for family gathering, although that's great. It wasn't for the exchange of gifts, although that is fantastic. Jesus came to die for our sins and save us from the wrath of God. When that becomes reality for you, Christmas takes on a whole new meaning, a profound season of love. Let us remember that this year and celebrate this season with the love of Almighty God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word today. God, you demonstrated your love to us by dying for the unworthy. And as we think about so many who have gone before us and have paid the ultimate price, God, I pray, stir in us the same faith. A faith that is willing to die for neighbor. A faith that is willing to treasure God. And a faith that is able to know God's love as demonstrated not only through the manger but through the bloody cross. Make it a reality for us today throughout this week and for the years to come. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take the offering today and before we do, I want us to pray for